and uh, I really enjoy it, and I hope, I hope, um, hope you all do too. Um, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about Matthew 7. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, for the second service in a row, I have not written down the page number, so I can't tell you which one it is. It's the first gospel, though, first book of the New Testament. It's number something or other. You can flip and find it, hopefully. Sorry about that. Uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 7. We're going to spend the, pri- the most of our time here in Matthew 7, the, uh, the majority of our time, though we will go to a couple different places. So leave your finger in Matthew 7. Matthew 7 is something that I've wrestled with quite a bit. It's, something, it's a verse that I've heard quite often. Before I, I worked here, I was a youth director uh, for almost six years, worked with students. And this particular verse was probably one of the most quoted to me. Uh, this particular section was one of the most quoted to me while I was a youth director. Because if you've, if you've found Matthew 7, no, you, you now know that it begins by saying, Do not judge, or you will be judged. And I think this verse, in many ways, has be, kind of become the anthem of, a, of our society. Especially those who are critical of the church. Those who are critical of the church on the outside and those who are critical of the church on the inside, whether you're old or young, the phrase, don't judge me, has worked its way pretty solidly into our vocabulary. Essentially, what they're saying is, don't judge me or you're a hypocrite, that you aren't listening to your own scripture. Those outside the church trumpet this phrase as proof that Christians are uncaring, hypocritical set of people who are only interested in sending people to hell. Now, if you don't believe me, spend a little bit of time this afternoon, go online, look up any of the major moral dis- disputes that we're having in the, in the country today or wherever we want to go, and then spend just a few minutes, because you won't be able to spend much longer than that there, in the comment section underneath the article. Now, careful with that. The comment section of any article is kind of the Wild West, so whatever else is in there, I'm sorry. But my guess is if you spend even a few minutes there, though, Either the phrase, don't judge, or some variation of that will be there very quickly. The world has taken this verse to mean that judgment is strictly prohibited by the Bible, and if you do it in any way, you're not a very good Christian. Now, we could say that just the world feels that way, but if we're honest with ourselves, this kind of thinking has found its way into the very fabric of our church as well, hasn't it? If I were to ask how many of you have considered quoting this verse to someone who's calling you out for something, my guess is if we were real honest, we'd probably raise your hand. I'd have to. I don't judge me. Like I already said, when I was a youth director, I th- it seemed like this was many of my students' life verse. They wouldn't have said that, but that's what it seems like. Don't judge me. But I, and now that I'm not anymore, to be honest, though I don't hear the word don't judge me as much, the, say, the idea is still there as well when, I, when I'm working or talking with adults. So let's not throw the youth just under the bus here. Many of us have this in our way of thinking. What I want to explore today is whether or not these understandings, the understandings that we just talked about, are valid when we read Matthew 7, or if they're correct, or if they're being applied to our lives in the right way. But before we can do that, we need to begin by understanding what we're talking about when we're talking about judgment. In the Bible, even though the same word is used in both places, there are two fairly different, fairly significant differences in our understanding of what we mean when we say judgment. For many of you, when I say the word judgment, the first thing that you think of is heaven and hell. Am 
When I say that we're going to be judged, that we, we think of sheep and goats and that they're going to be separated. Some of them are going to go to heaven and some of them are going to go to, go to, are going to, go to hell. In other words, what you're thinking of is you're thinking of final judgment. The end, the, at, the, at the last bit, when, when God will make his final judgment of whether hell is our eternal destination or heaven is our eternal destination. When we are talking about that kind of judgment, let me be really clear here. We as humans have no right to ever declare that kind of judgment. Never. It doesn't matter what's going on. We as humans never have the right to declare someone's final judgment. I want to make sure you hear that and take it with me. Take it with you. We as humans never have any right to declare someone's final judgment. Even here in Matthew 7, it says that. If you were to continue reading, Matthew 7 continues to say, For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used against you. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not willing to let anyone else other than God declare my final judgment. It's not a measure that I'm willing to mess around with. So it's a measure that I can't use because I'm not, it would not be something that I would want back on me. Unfortunately, though, in the past, and even to a lesser degree, into a lesser degree today, the church has not understood this concept well. And it, in our world today, even it's the same way. We will say things like, are you doing this thing? Are you doing that thing? Are you doing this thing? Well, then you're going to hell. We've made the declaration for, of, of someone's final judgment. And in those cases, even in our world today, when in those cases, when the world yells, responds by yelling back to us, judge not or you will be judged, in that situation, I think they're pretty correct to do that. In that situation, we as humans have overstepped our position and have no right to do that, and so for them to push back on, that, on us in that is appropriate. Now, if you're not sure still about whether or not we're allowed to declare final judgment, flip with me to the book of Jude. I know it's not one that we read often, and this is one I, I even more wish I had written down the page number of. It might take you a little longer to find it. But look into the book of Jude. Now, there's only one chapter, so we're going to look at Jude, chap- verse 9 of the book of Jude. And this is a very interesting section of the Bible. We don't read Jude much, but this little bit here, it, it gives us some profound insight into, into our right to declare final judgment. So Jude verse 9 says this, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, I don't often pull out Greek, partially because I'm not very good at it. But in this case, uh, if you were to look up the word condemn in Greek, or if you had a different translation other than the NIV, you would see that the word condemn has even more connotation with it than we can get in just the word condemn. If you were to look up this verse in an English Standard Version, it would actually say, Michael did not dare proclaim blasphemous judgment against the devil. So do you see what's happening here? What we have is we have... Michael, arguably one of the highest non-God beings that exists, right? The, the, the champion of the angels, if you will. And we have the devil, one of the evilest creatures that exists. It would be pretty hard to get a larger moral gap than what we have between the two of these. Michael and the devil. It's about as far away as we can get. And even in this particular situation, Michael will not declare Satan's final judgment. 
If Michael, the highest non-God being that exists, will not condemn the devil, the evilest being that exists, none of you have the right to declare someone's final judgment. Because my guess is that your moral gap with someone else is far smaller. We are clearly not given the authority in Scripture to declare anyone's final judgment. So we can see now that that's what Scripture says. But does it then mean that we are not supposed to make any judgments at all? And I would say, of course it doesn't. We see all over the Bible people making judgments about things. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, all over the place people making judgments about things. We see Jesus telling us that we'll be able to know true believers by their fruit. Which means we have to make a judgment about that fruit. Is it a good fruit or is it bad fruit? It's a judgment we're supposed to make. We see both in Galatians and Timothy that we need to gently correct those who have wavered from the truth. Meaning, we have, to, we have to judge whether what they're doing is right or wrong. Right? In the book of Proverbs, which is a verse, you, there's a verse that you've probably heard before. It's actually a verse we have hanging in our West Wing. It says that iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We've got a short little thing here. If you've never seen what it looks like for iron to sharpen iron, it looks like that. What Solomon is talking about is either a, a stone sharpening up, 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 a, up a sword or a plow, but most likely it's that. It's the forging of something, whether it be a shovel or whether it be a sword or whether it be anything made out of metal. And as you can see, it's something that requires a bit of force and friction, doesn't it? It's something that, 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 that requires us to decide that that particular thing can, can, be, can be a little bit better and, and, and applying a little bit of force to it. Now, let me be very clear here. I, I, what we're talking about when we're talking about this is not beating someone into submission. That would be a misappropriation of what we're talking about here. We're talking about, but we are talking about constant and repetitive working of something to change it into something a little bit better or to, pu- or to push it towards something a little bit better, towards refinement. So we see in Scripture that final judgment is reserved for God, but, but there's this other kind of judgment that we're actually supposed to be doing. And this is where it gets difficult for us. This is where it gets difficult for us to engage in conversations with the rest of the world. Matthew 7, 1 is often quoted. Do not judge or you will be judged. We hear the phrase, don't judge, don't judge, don't judge, all over the place. But we forget that Jesus' statement doesn't end there. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the same measure. Now, when we stop and think about that for a minute, we stop and really look at that scripture, my guess is that when you read that second part, you read it as a negative. Don't judge or you will be judged, or if you judge, then you will be judged, and the measure you use will be used against you. You, you think of that as a negative thing. And honestly, my, it's, I get that. Many of us are not the biggest fans of people making judgments about us. Am I right? I'm, I, that's me. I don't like it when people call me out for something that I'm doing that's not right. I don't like that. But the thing is, judgments from those who love and care about you is not a bad thing. Are, are not a bad thing. Judgments from those who love and care about you are not bad things. For all the parents out there, 
if you are a parent, you make judgments about your children all the time. Daily, often. And we actually call that love. You see something your child is doing, you make a judgment about that thing. Whether it's positive or negative, whether it's something that will lead them towards wholeness or emptiness, whether it's something that will lead them towards maturity or immaturity, or just simply whether it is good or bad for them. Am I right? You make those all the time. And then what do you do with it? You take it and you try to correct the behavior. Right? It's to a, to a bigger degree as they're younger, and we give some of that up as they get older. It's an example of iron sharpening iron, a hopefully gentle correction of something that is leading them the wrong way towards something that's better and fuller. Parents, you make judgments about your children all the time. In a parent and child relationship, your life experience as a parent has equipped you to teach and lead and guide your child into the kind of life they were created to live. Ideally, your judgments are a mostly positive influence on them and help guide them into becoming mature, responsible adults. Matthew 7, 1 through 3 in this kind of relationship applies itself in such a beautiful and innocent way. Because many of you, any of you who have children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews, or even if you've been around children for a little bit, you know that you try to guide them into the best kind of life, but the measure that you use will be used on you as well. So I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and believe me, when I, ma- I make judgments about them all the time. Right? This is something that's leading you towards something that's fulfilling. This is something that isn't. But what I find is that often will shoot back to me. You become more, a lot more aware of what you do when you're a parent, right? I've heard things out of my daughter's mouth before, like, Daddy, we don't say stupid. Yep. I did tell you not to do that. <laughs> and then I did it, right? I just did it now, and she's right there. Uh-oh. <laughs> Whoops. Hopefully the point still still sticks. But it's amazing how much more you watch yourself when you hear the things that you say come out of a four-year-old's mouth. And what I realize in that, though, is that the measure, the reason that I give her a measure, the reason I make judgments about her is because I desire for her to be the best she can be. And when that comes back to me, I realize that helps me be the best that I can be. If she hears it that way, other people probably do too. So I can understand what some of you are thinking. You're saying, all right, well, this is all well and good in a parent-child relationship. There's an authority structure there that kind of lends itself to this kind of correction. But this kind of thing doesn't work in regular adult relationships, right? So let's look at the rest of the passage. And at the beginning of it, it would seem like you're right. It says this, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye while the whole time there's a plank in your own? At first glance, this passage seems to support the idea that we should just all mind our own business, lest we be hypocrites. Because honestly, which one of us is sinless? But it's really important to look carefully at verse 5, which says, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. This verse is key to the entire rest of the section. Essentially, what it says is first, take care of your own business, work through your stuff, take the plank out of your own eye, whatever your planks may be, learn from your mistakes, grow and experience immaturity, and then remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
This entire passage has actually been leading us towards making judgments in the end. Take the plank out so that you may take the speck out. This passage is, is, is not about never making judgments about people. It's about not making rash or hypocritical or uncaring judgments. In the same way the experience of a parent guides a child into a better, more mature life, the experience each one of us has is meant to lead each other into a better, more mature life. Each of you has experience in different areas. Each of you have worked through planks in your life to one degree or another. Each of you have have then experienced the pain that comes along with those planks. And each of you has grown or are growing because of it. So to the degree in which you have removed that particular plank from your life, help others remove that pain from their life as well. The thing that you had to do the hard way, you can help someone else do the easy way by sharing your experience, just like you would hope someone else would do for you. The measure you use should be one you'd want to be used on yourself as well. Galatians 6, 1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You see, I get it that a speck is far, far smaller than a plank. And there is, and that's clear. We remove the plank first because the, the smeck, speck is supposed to be less significant than the plank. But the fact of the matter is, if you've ever had a speck in your eye, you know that it's not a comfortable thing, is it? It's actually kind of surprisingly a debilitating thing, right? You have a piece of sand in your eye. Does that eye really work? It's going to be all watery. It's going to hurt until you get it out. You really can't even open it, Right? So yes, it's a smaller deal than a full plank, but it's still something that we would desire to be out, something that we can help someone get rid of. One thing we have to make very clear, though, is the kind of judgments we're talking about here are not value judgments. When we, when we are trying to help remove someone's speck from their R, we aren't declaring someone's worth. A lot of times when we notice something in someone's life that's holding them back, We notch them down on the value scale a little bit. So they were at 100. Now I see them a little bit clearer. So now you're 75 and I'm still 100. It it puts us in a position of lording over someone or being better than. That's not what we're talking about here. We We are not declaring someone's worth or value in your eyes or value in God's eyes or in anyone else's eyes for that matter. The judgment isn't meant to made to say you have screwed up or are screwing up and therefore I am better than you. What it is saying is that you are hurting or you're hurting yourself or you're hurting others or your relationship with God is not the way that it should be and there's a better way. And you're saying, I know because I've experienced it. I've already worked through the plank in my eye and I desire for you not to have to do the same. This kind of judgment allows us to truly love and care for each other in a way that allows us to actually call sin what it is. Something that keeps us from living the full life God desires for us. And allows us to spur one another on towards a better, more fulfilling way. Brothers and sisters, to make judgments about people is an act of love if we do it. If we apply the principles Jesus lays out for us here in this section. We are encouraging those we care about to not continue to live in a way that causes themselves or others pain. But we are gently 
and humbly declaring to them that there is something greater out there and they can experience it. But that then does bring us to the final part of the message passage. This kind of judgment, the kind of judgment that we've just laid out, the one that spurs someone on to a greater kind of life, is reserved for those you are close to, to whom you care about, not someone you've just met one minute ago. The passage ends by saying this, Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The kind of judgment Jesus is talking about here is not to be thrown around to anyone you see walking down the street, even if their trespass seems clear to you. I don't know if, it's, if some of you may have experienced this. Have you ever offered stinging yet true wisdom to someone you don't know, especially if they weren't looking for wisdom or advice? If you have, I want to ask you how to go. Now, of course, there may, there may be examples in which it just hit. It worked well. I'm sure if we, if we interviewed enough people, you would say, yeah, I did it one time, and it really worked out okay. I think that's why the Bible says may. They may turn and trample you. But my guess is that far more often than not, it went poorly. We can actually see this playing itself out all throughout our country right now, all throughout our local communities. In very many cases, the church has thrown its pearls to pigs and people have turned on her. Now, before we get all bent out of shape, I did just say, I did just essentially call the rest of the world pigs. That's not what I, that that is what I said, but we got to make sure we understand what we mean by when I say that. When Jesus is saying, do not throw your pearls to pigs, he's not, again, not making a value statement. Jesus is not saying that people who don't believe in him are pigs in the sense that they are animals and the rest of us are people. That is not what that's saying. We have to realize that he's simply pointing out here that there are people who see the world differently, that have a different frame of reference, a different structure. This passage is in the book of Matthew, which was written for a Jewish, Jewish people who, are, who, are, who have, to have a Jewish context, and it's pre the cloth coming down to make pigs okay with Peter. So in this context, pigs are still just a representation of people who have a different kind of reference. Pigs are unclean. They're, they're a representation of the Gentiles. It's not a value statement. It's just an identifying statement in, a, in, in more uh, visual language. What Jesus is saying is that there are people out there with a different worldview, with a different perspective, who won't value the pearls in the same way that you do. You see, pearls have no value to pigs. Sacred bread doesn't have its sacred meaning to a dog. Your pearls of wisdom that you throw out randomly, even if they're meant to be caring, may not be perceived that way to, the person who, to a person you have not yet developed a relationship with. And this passage actually says they may actually do damage. It may actually turn them against you. And I think we've been able to see that in our society. The Bible tells us that we are never to declare someone's final judgment. That judgment is, in, is always and only reserved for God. It's a measure we do not want to apply to ourselves, and so it's one we cannot use on others. We are, however, called to share our experiences and wisdom with each other, to make judgments about each other in a loving and caring way. 
We are called to be like iron sharpening iron, to have our lives collide for the purpose of spurring each other on towards the fullest life possible. This relationship, however, is reserved for those we know, because the judgments we we are allowed to make are not ignorant or quick judgments, but thoughtful, loving, understanding judgments that come from a place of experience. It's really easy for us to just simply live our lives as separate islands, in which we don't create any friction and none comes back our way. It's easy for us to mind our own business and leave each, church, each person to figure things out on our own. But that's not church. That's not the kind of family God describes in the Bible. That's not the body we see in the Bible. So I want to challenge you to care for the people you love better. To share your experiences even if that might be painful, and it may be painful to you, because it may mean you have to actually think about or process through an experience that you had that was painful, or it might be painful for the person that you're talking to. Work to remove the planks from your eyes so that you may see clearly to remove the specks from those around you. And all of this is done for the purpose of helping each other live the best life possible. The life in which we have a relationship, in which we restore relationships with each other and our relationships with God. To restore the kind of life that God has and always intended for us to have. Join me in prayer. Father God, I pray that as we, can, as we think through the different areas in our life in which we remove planks from our eyes, that you give us wisdom to understand them and encouraged to share those experiences with those around us. God, I pray that that these experiences can help prevent people from having to experience them as well, that we can share our experiences, that we can build each other up, that we can spur one another on towards a fuller, more complete life in you. pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen.